Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're entering the season of Advent, the first Advent, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us here in America anyway, it is a time of uh, celebration, a time of rejoicing. It's a time of giving gifts uh, and receiving them. And I wonder if you are uh, like me, I, I, I don't have a much imagination when it comes to buying gifts for people. Uh, I, I actually, I have a cousin who has even less. Uh, he and his wife have been married for 51 or 52 years. And the first several Christmases they were married, he bought her things like a new trash can. An ironing board cover, and the next year an iron. Uh, needless to say, she was less than thrilled with those gifts. Now, you may not be that obtuse. You may realize a little more than that. But let me ask you a question. Suppose that you were to buy a gift or had to buy a gift or bring a gift to someone who, who has everything. Let's go a little further. What would you what would you bring to a king? I mean, what could you give to a king? And let's go further than that. What could you give to the king of kings? To one who is the king of all the kings of the earth. We have we have some men who are faced with that dilemma in our text this morning in Matthew chapter two. Uh, in the first of his letters to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul wrote that there were not many wise men by human standards, not many who were influential, not many who were of noble birth, who believed on Jesus, who have been chosen by God to know Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And that is, of course, true. And yet the, the Christmas story tells us that from the beginning of the Christian era, there have been some who were wise, some who were of noble birth, some who were influential, who came to worship Jesus. We call these that we are looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men, or the magi. They came from the distant east, probably from Persia, maybe Babylon. And they were distinguished even by the worldly standards of that day. And their arrival in Jerusalem caused quite a stir. Interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't tell us very much about these ancient visitors to Jerusalem. And scholars have puzzled over them and their journey uh, ever since they made it. Of course, millions of Christmas cards are printed every year uh, with a picture of three kings presenting gifts to a child that is in a manger. Uh, we sing at the Christmas season, we three kings of Orient are. But we do not know for sure that three wise men brought gifts. There may have been more than three. We do not know that they were kings. We don't know when they arrived in Bethlehem. 
it is quite likely in view of the long journey that they had and of Herod's later command to slaughter all of the children under two years of age uh, that when they arrived Jesus was already a young child perhaps a toddler and the story contains a suggestion of this we read in our text this morning that when the magi arrived they did not go to a stable where Jesus we know was born and laid in a manger a horse trough or a cattle trough but rather they came to a house that by that time Mary and Joseph had uh, somehow secured the use uh, of a house. Uh, and then we puzzle over the star that guided them to that home. Many have attempted to explain it as some sort of astronomical phenomenon. Early theorists uh, viewed it as a comet. That was the, the view of the great church father uh, Origen of Alexandria. Later, Johannes Kepler, the father of modern astronomy, explained it as a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces in the year 7 B.C. And that view has been uh, elaborated on in various ways and is probably the favorite explanation of astronomers today. I think that it is much more likely, however, that the star was a miraculous phenomenon, that uh, uh, something like the appearance of the Shekinah glory that we read about in the tabernacle and in the temple later on, that Shekinah that accompanied the children of Israel uh, on their journeys through the wilderness, that signified God's presence with them. I think only something of that nature could have led these wise men over the desert to Jerusalem and reappearing uh, again after their meeting with King Herod and then guiding them to Bethlehem, to the exact place where the child was. That, that seems to me to be the, the most straightforward reading uh, of the text. And here's something I think important. I'll touch on this a little bit later on as well. The Bible shows very little interest in those kinds of details. Just, just, not, just not much there. The fact that so little information of that kind is given shows that Matthew was not interested in how many wise men there were nor the length of their journey, nor where they were from, are of the star itself. The concern of Matthew was what should be ours, that this child born in Bethlehem is God come in human flesh, and that because God will save sinners by his life and his death, he is worthy of worship. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you understand that the word Messiah is simply the Hebrew word, a transliteration of a Hebrew word that in the Greek is translated Christos, 
or Christ. I used to think when I was a little boy that, you know, like Felix was my first name, Kerr was my last, that Jesus was his first name, Christ was his last name. You know, of course, that's not true. Jesus is his name, the Old Testament word Joshua, Yahshua, uh, which means Jehovah saves. And then Christ is a title. Christ or Messiah means the anointed one. The Messiah was the promised ruler. Uh, verse 2 tells us who this story is about. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? About a newborn child destined to be the king of the Jews. Now that in itself was not a very great thing if you think about it. Uh, somewhere alive in America today, there are probably three or four different young people under the age of 18 who will be president of the United States someday. But nobody really cares about them now, nor does anyone set out to try to find who they are, nor is there any miraculous phenomena that would lead us to where they live. But verse 4 makes clear what these magi really mean by king of the Jews. It says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, that is Herod, inquired of them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. Herod had been called the king of the Jews uh, by the Senate in Rome for almost 40 years, although he was an Idumean. But no one called him Messiah. Messiah means the long-awaited, anointed ruler that comes from God, the one who would overcome all other rule and bring in the end of history and establish the kingdom of God, the one who would never die or ever lose his throne or ever abdicate his power. We don't know with certainty how the Magi got their information. How did they know that it was time for Messiah to be born? I have a theory. It's probably as good as anybody else's. I believe they'd somehow read the book of Daniel. Uh, you don't agree with that? Fine. You've got a right to be wrong just like anybody else does. But that, that's my theory. But I don't know. Whatever you come up with, good. That's fine too. But it is clear that Herod understood what they were talking about. That these, these guys were not looking for a merely ordinary human successor. Herod is thinking, they're not just looking for some guy to take my place. I mean, this is a guy going to take everybody's place. This, is the, this is the, will be the last king of Israel. He's the permanent king, the eternal one. They are searching for the final king, the king to end all kings. Uh, and unlike Anna and Simeon in Luke chapter 2, that's the last thing Herod was looking for. I mean, if you read a little bit of history about Herod, you can understand the phrase that it disturbed him and all Jerusalem with him. They knew what Herod was capable of. He was a murderous thug. And so if Herod was disturbed, 
they were disturbed because their life was about to get much, much more difficult. I find it interesting as well that here we have a man who is called the king of the Jews who had no idea where in the Bible he might discover where the Christ was to be born. So he asked the scribes, he asked his theologians, he calls in all of his uh, uh, seminary folks, and they very quickly tell him, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That doesn't sound very extraordinary either. The reason is that the only purpose for the scribes to answer the question was Herod had simply asked, where? The answer is Bethlehem. But what if Herod had asked them, who? Then they might have read on in the book of Micah, his going forth from long ago, from the days of eternity. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. So this king is not just coming to being in the womb of his mother Mary. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is an incarnation. This is God coming in human flesh. Or as John puts it in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the eternal Son, the second person of the Godhead, who is coming in the form of a child. And this king's reign would not be simply limited to Israel. He will be great to the ends of the earth. That's the first truth. That is why worship is on their mind. These are Gentiles that have come to this king. Why would Gentiles be interested in the king of the Jews? Because they realize he's more than that. That he is indeed the king of kings. That Jesus is to be worshipped not just by Jews, but by all the nations of the world. Represented here by these wise men from the east. Notice that Matthew doesn't tell us the story of the shepherds coming to the stable, as Luke does. His emphasis is on foreigners coming from the east to worship Jesus. Verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that has been born the king of the Jews? So Matthew's gospel portrays Jesus at the beginning and the ending of his gospel as a universal Messiah, not just for the Jews. The first ones who come to worship him are court magicians, astrologers, wise men, not from Israel, but from the east. Again, perhaps from Babylon. They were Gentiles. They were unclean. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were without hope in the world. But they find hope in this baby that is born in Bethlehem. 
So the, again, the emphasis on Jesus being a king. You, you find that as well at the end of Matthew where Jesus says to his disciples and to us, all authority, all power, all exousia has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. This not only opened the door for us Gentiles, like you and I, to rejoice in the Christ, it added proof that he was indeed the Christ. One of the repeated prophecies of the Old Testament was that nations and kings would come to him. Indeed, come to him as the ruler of the world. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3 says, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So Matthew adds proof to the Messiahship of Jesus and shows that he is the Messiah, a king, a promise fulfiller, and one for all the nations, not just Israel, not just the Jews alone, but for all the peoples of the earth. God wields the universe to make his son known and worshiped. And this is his great goal in all things, that his son be known and worshiped. Over and over, the Bible baffles our curiosity about how certain things happened. I said before, how did the star uh, appear to get the Magi from the east to Jerusalem? Uh, it doesn't really say in verse 2 that the star led them to Jerusalem. It, it just says they saw his star in the east and they had come. And how did that star go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Is verse nine. And how did it stand over the house where the child was. I mean, it's like a spotlight. You know what I'm saying? It's like a spotlight moving around specifically. It's not, this is not like a star. All right? It's a brilliant light. It's not a star. We don't, we don't know the answer to all of those things. And again, there, there's been all kinds of efforts to explain it. Conjunction of planets, supernovas, Comets, we just don't know. Let me and let me let me exhort you here. Don't become too preoccupied with things like that. With developing theories that are only tentative in the end and have very little, if any, spiritual significance. I risk here a generalization to warn you. People who are exercised and preoccupied with such things as how the star worked or how the Red Sea split, how the manna fell, how Jonah survived the fish, how the moon turns to blood. People who are preoccupied with those things are generally people who have what I call a mentality for the marginal. They're like the Middle Eastern theologians who could spend days theorizing how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. All of that is really, in the end, worthless. How does that lead you to become more like Jesus Christ and to worship Him? 
How does any of that knowledge help you to do anything except perhaps amaze people at a Christmas party? You know, with your endless amount of trivia. I had a friend who used to tell me that I was an expert at trivial pursuit and jeopardy because I was a gold mine of worthless information. That's probably true. All of that information, okay, but it doesn't help you to worship the King of Kings. And that's what we're after here. That's what we're looking to do. People who have this kind of mentality, you rarely find in them a deep cherishing of the deep things of the gospel, of the holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, the helplessness of man, the death of Christ, justification by faith alone, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the glory of Christ's return, and of His final judgment. I've told you before, I had a friend a few years ago who, who did a survey through the book of the Revelation. And his emphasis was simply this, Jesus Christ is victorious. There is victory in Jesus. And he had church members who got exceedingly angry with him because he didn't go into detail about, you know, the seventh head on the fourth beast out of the sixth pond. Out. He didn't tell them all those things. And, and they, were, they were outraged. Why all you want to talk about is victory in Jesus? Listen, that's all I got to talk about, okay? I had a man in this church not too long ago, a few years back. One Sunday after the service, he asked me, he said, you know, when it says that the seven thunders uttered to John there in Revelation, I said, yeah. He said, what did they say? I don't know. John didn't know either. He got, he got angry. He left the church. I should have just said it said you need to come to church and sit down and hush. Maybe he'd have believed it. I don't know. Don't get, don't get caught up in things that you cannot know the answer to. Get caught up with the things you can know the answer to. I mean, there, there's way more of this Bible that I understand that I need to grapple with as opposed to things that I cannot understand. And that no one else does either. So be careful in these areas. There's some interest in this, of course, but don't get obsessed with it. What is plain concerning the matter of this star is that it is doing something that it cannot do on its own. It is guiding the Magi to worship this child as God. There's only one person that in biblical thinking can be behind the intentionality of the star. And that is God himself. So the lesson is abundantly clear here. God is guiding these foreigners to worship him. And he is doing it by exerting global, even universal influence and power to get it done. Luke shows God influencing the Roman Empire by ordering the events so that Caesar Augustus called for a census for the purposes of taxation at exactly the time that Mary is due so that she and Joseph travel to Bethlehem 
because that is the city that they would go to to be counted in this census. Matthew shows God influencing the very heavenly bodies to get foreign magi to Bethlehem so that they can worship him. That is God's design. That was his design then. That is his design now. His aim is that the nations, all the nations, worship Jesus Christ, his son. That is God's will. God's will for your life, for my life, for everybody in your office, for everybody in your school, for everybody on this planet. It is God's will that Jesus Christ be worshipped. John 4.23 says, Such the Father seeks to worship Him. At the beginning of Matthew, we have a come and see pattern. At the end, it's a go and tell. The Magi come to see who is born the King of the Jews. At the end of Matthew, Jesus says, Now, go into all the world, proclaiming this gospel, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is not different, either at the beginning or at the end, is that the purpose is the ingathering of the nations to worship Jesus Christ. The magnifying of Christ in the, in the white hot, hot worship of all the nations is the reason the world exists. And eventually, all will worship Jesus. Eventually, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that the perception of man determines his reaction to Christ. Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship him. And he brings out opposition for those who do. Probably not a main point in the mind of Matthew here, but it is inescapable as the story goes on. In the story, there's two kinds of people who do not want to worship Jesus as the Messiah. The first are those who simply do nothing about Jesus. He's a non-entity in their lives. That group was represented by the chief priests and the scribes. Do you not find this amazing? Here are chief priests, scribes, pastors, theologians, and they are asked, where is the Messiah to be born? We've come to worship him. We've seen his star. And they go, yeah, Bethlehem. And that's a, they do nothing. They don't say, hey, could, could we go with you guys? I mean, we're, we're Jewish theologians. This Man, this is big news. We want to go worship him too. No, they do nothing. You know. They just ignore him. He, he means absolutely nothing to them. The silence, the inactivity of these religious leaders is overwhelming in view of the magnitude of what is happening here. Their unconcern is frightening. And yet, there, that's many people in the world today. They care nothing about the real meaning of Christmas care about Jesus. It doesn't matter to them. You know, it, 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 it just doesn't matter. The second kind of people 
are those who are deeply threatened by him. Herod is one of those. Herod is threatened by Jesus. He doesn't want to worship him. He wants the Magi to come and tell him where he is so that he can kill him. We know that because he's going to order the death of all of the children under two years of age. And we recoil in horror at that kind of savagery. And yet, in our country today, you can kill a child right up to the moment of its birth. No one's appalled about that. That's fine. That's, that's the pro-choice position. That, that's what everyone should take who is compassionate. Isn't it interesting that we've come to a time now that darkness is called light? And light is called darkness? And the butchering of children is called a clear choice that we have the freedom to make? So before we're you know, too hard on Herod, let's remember we're, we're no better. But here are the two extremes, indifference and hostility. And I ask you, you're not one of those groups, are you? When you think about Christmas, are you overwhelmed? Are you amazed? Do you, like the Apostle Paul, marvel at the mystery of godliness and how great it is and how wonderful it is? I, 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 get, I get more, I think, more amazed every year when I ponder Jesus Christ coming to earth. What? What an amazing thing that God would come to earth to save vile, wretched, ungrateful sinners like me. This should be a time of year when we reconsider who the Christ is and ponder what it means to worship Him. What a privilege it is to worship Him. Worshiping Jesus... I think, and I, this, this definition I'm going to give you is not mine. I, I believe that I stole it from John Piper. If I didn't, just think that I did, okay? Because I really like it, you know, and I'm going to give it to you. Worshiping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with sacrificial gifts. Let me say it again. Worshiping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with sacrificial gifts. There is the ascribing of authority here. They call him the king of the Jews. There is the ascribing of dignity. They go into the house, they fell down and worship him. Falling down to the ground means you're high, I'm low. You have great dignity, I'm lowly by comparison. Then there's joy. Verse, I love verse 10. I mean, you, if there's ever been a case of hyperbole, here it is. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You get that? That's a quadruple way of saying they rejoiced. I mean, it would have been much to say they rejoiced or to say they rejoiced with joy. Or to say they rejoiced with great joy. 
but they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Uh, they were joyful. You get the idea? They had some they had some serious joy here. And what was that joy about? They were on their way to the Messiah. They were almost there. Their long journey was almost over. I I, I don't think you can avoid the implication here is that true worship is not just ascribing authority and dignity to Christ, but it is doing so joyfully. So, are you filled with joy when you think of the birth of Jesus? Does it just kind of bubble up in you? If not, why not? Maybe you're not thinking correctly as to who Jesus is and the kind of worship that he deserves. And then they they did so. They ascribed authority and dignity joyfully with sacrificial gifts. They gave him gifts. We know that the Bible says God is not served by human hands. What will you give God who owns the gold of Ophir and the cattle on a thousand hills? So what were these gifts? They were not, obviously, they were not intended to be bribes. A king cannot be bribed. We know that from Deuteronomy. God takes no bribe. What do they mean? And how are they worshipped? And again, I think it was John Piper who said that the gifts are intensifiers of desire for Christ in himself in much the same way that, that fasting is. When you give a gift like this, you are saying, the joy that I am pursuing is not in hopes of getting something from you, not getting rich, but of of having you for myself. They are coming, they are coming to this Christ. This this child can't give me anything back. They are coming expressing a desire for the king, the king of kings. By giving to God what he does not need and what I might enjoy is a way of saying, you are my treasure, not these things. Is that our worship? Is that the way we find ourselves worshiping this time of year? Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He is the Messiah. All nations will come and bow down before Him. God wills the world, the universe, to see that He is worshiped. Therefore, whatever opposition I may find in the world, I joyfully ascribe authority and dignity to Him and bring gifts to Him, knowing that He alone can satisfy my deepest needs. Not by giving me things, but by giving me Himself.
so the question is, do you know Jesus Christ as Messiah? Do you know him as the anointed one of God? The one who came to earth as a child in the womb of a virgin, who lived a perfect life, who died a vicarious death, who died in your place, that you might be forgiven. If you do, if you do, then joyfully, joyfully ascribe authority and dignity to Him. Worship Him in the beauty of His holiness. Glory in His holy name. Let this, let this season of the year be one that joy for Christ overflows in you to those around you. We're going to stand and have